one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 200, a tribute to Professor Mark Witto. For our 100th episode, I interviewed Mike Duncan, which seemed like the only way to celebrate that milestone. He remains the inspiration for this show, and I can't thank him enough for his work bringing Roman history to life. When I thought about what to do for our 200th show, I tried to think of a similarly important figure who I could interview, and the name that came to mind was Professor Mark Witto, author of the most influential book on the development of this podcast, The Making of Orthodox Byzantium. Professor Witto was a British historian specialising in Byzantium. He was working at the University of Oxford until December 2017, when tragically he died in a car accident. He is a great loss to academia and Byzantine studies in particular. So today I'd like to pay tribute to him and his amazing contributions to the field. What I'm going to do is to summarize the insights from three articles he wrote, which have had a profound impact on my understanding of Byzantine history. The shared theme of these articles is the nature of political power in the empire. And between them, they offer us potential answers to vital questions, such as why the Romans suffered so many civil wars, and why they were unable to recover Anatolia from the Turks. I have put links up at thehistoryofbyzantium.com if you'd like more information about Professor Witto's life and work, and the details of these three articles. Before we begin, though, let me draw your attention to Professor Witto's style of scholarship as an introduction. Back during the Arab siege of 717, I tried to elaborate on the Byzantine understanding of the world, and this is what I said. Imagine a situation where a hut collapses and kills a man who was sleeping inside. Once he or she had inspected the scene, a Roman would agree with us that the hut had fallen because termites had eaten through its main supporting beam. But they might regard that as only a rather obvious first step. For them, the real question would be why the termites ate through that beam in that particular hut and why it fell with that specific man inside. 
Our response, that this was just a matter of bad luck or coincidence, would be seen by them as a bizarre failure to answer the obviously significant questions. Romans throughout the ages saw their best laid plans destroyed by drought, floods, locusts, disease, storms, or even civil war. Good administrators might plan brilliant expeditions only to see their fleet smashed against the rocks. Sometimes men just fell over dead with no obvious explanation. To look for divine causation in these events rather than a display of ignorance could be viewed as the logical response to making sure things went better next time. It's an extra layer of causality that we in modern times have stripped away. But we are the outlier. Throughout history, and amongst many cultures today, the Roman view prevails, that things beyond our understanding do affect human events. During the siege of 717, the residents of Constantinople still packed their storehouses with food, they still piled up weapons at the walls and built new ships as fast as they could, but they believed that these acts alone were not the sole determinant of their fate. That passage of the podcast has drawn repeated praise and attention from listeners over the years, and that's because it comes from the mind of Mark Whittow. Those ideas came directly from his book and from the research that he'd done with people in non-Western cultures today. It really is a good illustration of Professor Whittow's style, because what he does in the articles you'll hear about in this episode is compare Byzantium to something else either another society or an earlier era of Roman history. By showing the experience of other people in similar situations, he draws out insights that help us understand what made the Byzantines unique. Let's begin then with a question that has plagued us throughout the course of the podcast. Why were there so many pretenders to the throne? Why was every emperor seemingly dogged with usurpers? and civil wars. In his article, Staying on Top in Byzantium, Professor Whittow discusses the nature of politics in Byzantium. He says politics is ultimately about power, how to gain it, keep it, share it, and deny it to others. It is how power was distributed in Byzantium that led to repeated attempts on the throne. We've talked about the imperial honours system many times, the court salaries, gifts and titles that were handed out every Easter to the elites. We've often discussed how this system was a source of stability for the empire, how it kept men coming back to the centre rather than forming breakaway kingdoms. Professor Witto argues that although this is true, the scale of rewards available at the very top of the social pyramid were so vast that it generated great pressure on the elite elites to always be in power. He asks us to consider the power of money in Byzantine society. For one copper coin, you could buy ten mackerel and a pound of bread, at Constantinople at least. While out in the provinces, just ten gold coins could buy you a hectare of land. Cold hard cash went a long way, and a lot of cash could turn you overnight into one of the very rich. Let's put that another way. 
there were 72 gold coins in a pound of gold. And for those 72 coins, you could buy nearly four hectares of land, along with a mule and a slave to work them. Now that's from one pound of gold. The Stratikos of the Anatolikon was paid 50 pounds of gold every year. So imagine that your father was the Stratikos, and you were in line to be made Stratikos of a smaller neighbouring theme, and your uncle was to be given a lucrative command and your cousin another. Your extended family were now major players, and you would obviously between you acquire thousands of dependents, clients, and other friends who all fed off the immense wealth the palace was sending your way. Oh look, here comes a messenger from the west. What's that? Our good friend the emperor has been overthrown. The new Vasilevs, in order to reward his supporters, will be sacking all of us and giving our commands to his friends. In fact, he's threatening to confiscate most of our lands as well. Now you can see how pressure would grow across a wide spectrum of interested parties to deliver regime change. When we read history, we tend to simplify everything. It's much easier to digest dates and battles when we reduce the cast of characters to just a few recognisable faces. Here, Professor Witto and the scholars whose work he's building on are trying to bring us the reality that lies under the written history. The clans that formed behind powerful families had a deep vested interest in who was emperor. Professor Witto points out how this pressure from one's wider kin would force men to try and become emperor even if they didn't really want the job. He says, uh, for families like these, who was emperor was not just important, but of absolutely paramount importance. And even if the particular candidate for the throne might hesitate and fear the fate that befell so many emperors and would-be emperors, those behind would be pressing on. Byzantium thus combined strong forces in favour of systemic stability, with equally powerful forces working for violent instability at the very top. It's easy to see now why the Komnenos clan was so keen to accommodate Melisinos and marry everyone in the top jobs to one another to try and prevent this system from eating them and the whole empire in the process. I think we can also look backwards and see why we got a series of duff emperors in the wake of Basil II's death. Basil was in power for so long that the coalition of elites he'd forged were very happy with the status quo. They were willing to tolerate a series of uninspiring rulers and were particularly keen to support Zoe and Theodora because they knew that the empresses and their clients were always going to favour the families that they'd known their entire lives. Our recent usurpations all fit into this pattern. Votanyatis was Stratikos of the Anatolikon, and the court seemed to have abandoned him, unable even to land armies in Anatolia. He was stranded with no access to the levers of power, so he made for the Bosphorus. And once he'd seized the throne, Vurienios and Melisinos knew that they would now be out in the cold, so they had every incentive to overthrow him and gain power for themselves. If we look even further back, 
I think we can now see that civil war between Basil II and Bardas Phocas was almost inevitable. When Basil was a child, he'd lived in fear of Nicephorus Phocas and John Simiskes when they'd taken over the palace and exiled his mother. So while he was still a teenager, he needed Bardas Phocas to run the army for him. But once he started taking the field in person, he had every reason to dispense with the family who'd threatened his throne. While standing behind Bardas was a huge coalition of Anatolian families who'd enjoyed power for a century and were staring down the barrel of being cast adrift, demoted en masse to being mere provincial landowners with no imperial protection from the enemies they'd made. Viewed from this perspective, the endless Roman civil wars seem far more explicable. But... Listener S.K. asks, why would men start these conflicts when the empire seemed on the verge of collapse, as surely it did when the Turks were loose in Anatolia? What were they thinking? Let's go to our second article. In the Second Fall, the place of the 11th century in Roman history, Professor Witto takes us back in time to see how the arrival of the Turks and the collapse of Byzantine control in Anatolia mirrored events from the past. In 376 AD, under pressure from the movement of the Huns, two tribes of Goths appeared at the Danube River asking for asylum. The Emperor Valens agreed to let them in, but mismanagement led to revolt. Valens brought the eastern armies to Adrianople to crush the Goths, but instead was defeated and killed, leaving the untamed Germans loose in the Balkans. The similarities with the arrival of the Turks and the Battle of Manzikert should be easy to see. Convulsions on the steppe led to tribes migrating into the empire, followed by a catastrophic defeat. The two stories aren't identical, In our narrative, there is no Gothic middlemen. The steppe tribes are the ones to directly attack the Byzantines, but the dynamics are similar. And it's what happens next in both stories that Professor Witto draws attention to. As we just discussed, in our narrative, several Byzantine commanders make alliances with the Turks in order to try and become emperor. In doing so, they hand over the fortresses of Anatolia to the newcomers. Alexius then begins hiring Turks to defeat his enemies in Europe, and as we heard last episode, acknowledges the right of the new Sultanate of Nicaea to exist on imperial territory. Back in the 4th century, the Romans also concluded that rather than fight the Goths, it would be better to make an accommodation with them in exchange for their military manpower. Under this agreement, Theodosius I used Gothic muscle to defeat two rivals for the throne. The Goths would rebel again, sack Rome, and eventually get the deal they were looking for over in Aquitaine. In both stories, it's not the foreign invasion which does the most damage to the empire, It's the response of the Roman elites to the outsiders. Rather than see them as threats to be destroyed, they are viewed as assets to be exploited. 
The Roman Empire had many features in common in the 370s and the 1070s. In terms of its political structures, four stand out to Professor Witto. The powerful and largely unrestrained position of emperor, the capital city where all power resides, the tax system that gathers revenue and delivers it to the capital, and the professional army that the money pays for. This system in both 370 and 1070 encouraged the elites to always look to the centre to gain power. It was at the capital city, wherever it might be, that power resided. It was there that the tax receipts lived, the bureaucrats who understood them, and the position of emperor which controlled everything. So when the Goths, or Turks, entered this system and caused instability at the very top, the Roman elites were drawn to that instability and how they might benefit from it, rather than respond to the invaders as a threat to their very existence. Think about how civil war functions in Byzantium. We've seen many attempts to kill the emperor at the capital itself, but if you want to overthrow him from the provinces, there is only one way to do it. You have to have an imperial army under your command. That's what Thomas the Slav did. That's what Nicephorus Phocas and Bardas Phocas did. Only when the government had paid those men and put them in your care would you have the means to march on Constantinople. The Goths and now the Turks, overturn this scenario. Their arrival provides provincial usurpers with a new army for hire. Men who would have been forced to accept their demotion and move on were now handed the opportunity to grasp again for the top job. These new armies for hire, these outsiders, made ideal recruits. They came with their own military structures and commanders. They didn't even need to be trained or led into battle. And they were foreigners, and in the case of the Turks, Muslims. So they weren't going to supplant you as a candidate for the throne. And they were cheap. Cheap compared to Romans, anyway. The Turks in Anatolia were trying to escape Seljuk control. So they had no pay from Baghdad to support them. They were just living off their hurts. When Roman commanders showed up with chests full of coins, they were more than happy to make a deal. Votaniates and Melisinos would never have dreamt of rebelling without Turkish support. And Alexius would never have become the empire's senior general without them serving in his army. The Turks were such a potent force in Roman politics that Alexius essentially gave them control of Anatolia in order to stop other Romans from being able to acquire their services. As you'll see next week, part of his deal in acknowledging their right to occupy Nicaea was that only he could hire them as mercenaries from then on. Back in the 5th century, the Goths were followed by Vandals and Franks and others who got drawn into endless Roman civil wars until the Western Empire, in the memorable phrase of one historian, accidentally committed suicide. Why did men then and now not see the danger in using independent armies against their fellow Romans? in part because of Roman assumptions about the inability of barbarians to form states, but also because the rewards of becoming emperor were so immense 
that they justified any manner of sins occurred along the way. In both cases, then, as Professor Witto concludes, a crisis triggered by movements in the steppe world had been filtered through the structures of Roman politics to cause imperial collapse. In our third and final paper, How the East Was Lost, Professor Witto discusses why the Romans never retook Anatolia from the Turks. As usual, he begins with a telling comparison. He points out that there were three major changes to Europe's political geography during the 11th century. Six months after Manzikert, the Normans captured the Sicilian capital of Palermo from its Muslim rulers, while a decade before that, King Alfonso VI of Spain captured the city of Toledo. In all three cases, the direction of travel was one way. Spain and Sicily were destined to become Christian realms once more, while the Turks turned Anatolia into Turkey. Professor Witto sees the commonality being that the side who would emerge victorious was the more militaristic culture, more violent and more willing to make the sacrifices necessary to dominate the contested land. This might seem odd to us because it brackets the Western Christians with the Muslim Turks. But again, it's about political structures. The Muslim states in Sicily and Spain were still run on caliphal models, so a central authority controlled revenues and directed the armies. In a structural sense, they were similar to Byzantium. The Turkic tribes and the Spanish kingdom might seem to have little in common, but both devolved power down to local elites who practiced violence daily in defense of the lands they had and in gaining new acres. In an isolated confrontation, the advantage might well rest with the centralized state. Their ability to recruit and pay new armies can overwhelm the resources of their self-sufficient opponent. But in these long contests for territory, the advantage can shift to the decentralized power. Their local elites take it upon themselves to constantly put military pressure on their enemies, wearing down a centralized state who often struggle to deal with more than one trouble spot at a time. During the Crusades, we'll see this clash of cultures time and again between the Byzantines and the Latins, despite being on the same side. The Westerners came armed with a culture of heroic violence. They believed that elite males went to war, fought their enemies directly, and were plain-spoken in their dealings. They were confused and sometimes disgusted by Byzantine elite males who eschewed violence in favour of imperial service, with all the double-talk and obsequiousness that comes from serving an autocratic regime. This difference in behaviour reflects the different attitudes to getting ahead. In the West, you had to fight in order to render service to a wealthy patron who would reward you with land. In Byzantium, you could serve for decades without touching a sword and become stinking rich without needing to own vast estates. During the Second Crusade, one of the Latin knights came across the city of Nicomedia, 
well within the Byzantine orbit at this point, but left largely abandoned. His conclusion was simple. The Romans are lazy. Here is a fine city one could occupy and fortify, left amidst thorns and brambles. Such a city would have been seized in the West and exploited to its full potential. But in Byzantium, it was imperial service and not the land itself that led to wealth. Professor Witto points out that this is why Anatolia was abandoned so quickly by its supposed guardians. The Komnenoi themselves had estates in Paphlagonia, but when the going got tough, the elites didn't stand and fight for their land because they didn't live on it. They lived in mansions in Constantinople, as close to the real source of wealth and power as they could. Professor Witto argues that the way to retake Anatolia would have been to imitate the tactics used by the Spanish, to garrison a network of castles and then launch counter-raids whenever the Turks came near, and above all else, he says, live with a determination not to let any ground go by default. In reality, the Turks faced very little opposition. The Roman authorities knew that this was a potential solution, but any move in that direction had to be imperially directed, which required money and political will and a consistent policy over the course of a couple of centuries, all of which was hard to achieve. But most of all, the Byzantines lacked elites who would commit themselves to this kind of relentless dogfight for scraps of land. Since land was not the fundamental basis of political power, this wasn't a sacrifice they were incentivized to make. By contrast, the Turks had every reason to maintain pressure on any imperial pushback and eventually to seize even more land from the Romans. So there you have it. A potential explanation for the past, present and future of the imperial order summed up for you in one episode. That was the genius of Mark Witto's scholarship, to see the big picture and to draw it clearly for eager students like me. Next time, we return to 1082 and Alexius's war with the Normans. You may be pleased to know that this is one of those occasions when the centralized state and its tax revenues will be too much for the more militarized outsider. A special thanks to all of you who've supported the show on our journey to 200 episodes. As for the rest of you, stay tuned after the music fades. The crowds are out in the streets again to celebrate the success of the history of Byzantium, the ethereal city in our minds. You can only hear the sounds of the festivities, though, as they drift in through the doors of the church. A priest approaches at last to hear your tale of woe. He looks increasingly horrified as you tell him that despite your long stay in the city, you've never even tried to give an iTunes review.
I'm not sure it's even called that anymore, you whine. And I use Spotify. What am I going to do? Download it specifically just to help the history of Byzantium? As the words leave your lips, you bow your head and realize how shameful your behavior has been. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.